one of the senior members of her college then came up to me and we, we were having a conversation and suddenly said, your English is really good. <gasps> Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tisai. Britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open. We are really excited today to be joined by Dr. Ali Meji. Hello, Ali. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Ali is a lecturer in social inequalities at the University of Cambridge. This is our... What is it, 52nd? 52nd episode. I didn't think I knew that, And I've been really looking forward to speaking to Ali because I have read quite a bit of your stuff already, Ali, but not necessarily on the stuff that we're going to talk about today. But we're going to do a bit of a sort of social theory, history of sociology type episode, which I think is really good because... I've always really struggled to understand theory and like I think it's really good when people really break it down for you because I think sometimes there's like an assumed knowledge in sociology and I think that even happens like I think it happens from like A level all the way up to when you're like professors like and I just yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like when people break stuff down because I can't just understand like but it's not it's like it's like one of those things where you walk into a room and everyone says have you read that book and you're like it's one of those things, I must have done it so you think if I haven't done it I'm going to sound a bit stupid yeah but, and then you stand in and going yeah yeah so what do you think him and you're like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but you don't know what you're talking about and I'm sort of one of these people I've never really been afraid to say like what does that mean standard but, mm. But lots of people don't. Lots of people don't do that, and I completely understand why. But the amount of times, in particularly sociological settings and academic settings as a whole, when I've said, what does that mean? They're like, don't you know? Well, there's a... No, I don't. But everyone wants... No one wants to sound stupid. So when you ask them things like, well, what does like neoliberalism mean then? You're, you use it all the time, and they're so scared to say it. They're like... Uh, uh, and then, well, then that's what it's not my field of expertise. Yeah. Mm. And that's the get out of it. And I think, listen, that's fine. I'll drop, it's an honest answer. I'd rather but say don't that. use the word loads then. But we were in that lecture yeah. together, weren't yeah, we? Yeah. I think when we were doing like introduction to qualitative and analysis, yeah, yeah. and we were like, what do you mean by neoliberalism? And they're like, uh, and I was like, okay, well. In, instead of like just being honest and saying, like, listen, there's, there's, it's, like, it's a minefield, man. Mm. And just be honest and say, think of this is what I think of it. No one said that. No, well, not no one, but some people. Yeah, some people. Yeah. Ali, including, is going to break some break stuff, stuff down. down. Break it down. Today. Break it down. So perhaps it might be really good to talk about um, the history of sociology. Yeah. And what you sort of sent over to us, I thought, was just so so fascinating. Like mm-hmm. how, in the US in particular, and how sociology came about and what was actually happening in wider society at that point. Yeah, the, the idea is basically that sociology developed in kind of the belly of the imperial episteme. So by that, I mean the imperial episteme is kind of like a way of thinking and a way of producing knowledge and a way of thinking about the world that relies on the notion of colonial difference. So the idea that there are distinct populations around the world and some, i.e. the Western, the Northern, are significantly more superior and fully human than the other groups, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of at the peak of this imperialism, uh, empires and different colonialisms, you get the emergence of sociology within that very kind of grand context rather than coming from outside of that context. And I think that we're typically taught sociology as if it kind of happened in this disembodied world that wasn't affected by colonialism, wasn't affected by empires, wasn't affected by imperialism. Um, And what I did was I was reading Julian Go the other day. He's got some really good stuff about this. And he was looking at it in the U.S., and he had some really interesting facts. Shall I just say a few of yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, go, go I'll say a few of them. So he points out that the first recorded PhD in the US, which was by W.F. Blackman in 1893 at Cornell, was about kind of the, the making of Hawaii, a study of social evolution. And that was exactly the same year that the Hawaii monarchy was overthrown by the US in their imperialist mission, right? Um, 1911, Giddings, in I think what was then the equivalent of the American Sociological Association, said that basically imperialism is the key issue for sociologists to be studying, right? So there's this kind of really big cognizance of US sociologists that there is this empire going on, and they were thoroughly interested in it, but we don't really get to know how empire, how imperialism came to shape sociology in the way that we're taught in terms of the canon. But if you kind of look at the courses that were being taught at the beginning of the 20th century, they're all obsessed with empire. And quite often in really Orientalist ways or in ways that really clearly reproduce the idea of colonial difference. 
So just if I go through some of the courses that were being taught, Charles Cooley had an introductory sociology class and it was entitled The Public Mind in Primitive Society. So we know what primitive means here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean history, it means right now, but in places that aren't US. Yeah. yeah. Um, Edward Ross had a course on the origin of man, which was focusing on origin and characteristics of races. Yeah, so once again, colonial difference, absolutely essential to sociology. Ulysses Weatherly had an introduction to sociology at Indiana. Once again, that was focused on the origin and history of races and racial geography. So it was kind of like key to the US sociology. Yeah. And then if you look at what was being written, Edward Ross has a book called Social Control, and it's seen as being one of the classics of American sociology. Yeah. And it's typically taught as we in Britain would teach someone like Giddens, right? As yeah. kind of like one of the emblematic American social thinkers. But it wasn't actually about America, his study. It was about colonialism again, right? He says, the purpose of this inquiry is to ascertain how men of the West European breed are brought to live closely together and to associate their efforts with that degree of harmony we see about us. So once again, it's about the superiority of Western people. And he kind of compares the savage people of Hindus, mm. so people in India, with the blonde Aryan people, right? Mm. So once again, colonial difference is absolutely essential. <laughs> yeah. It's like a machine. It's prepping young minds for their roles in the world. Mm. And when you're encountering that as a young student of colour, all through my education, I see this. I'm absent. Or mm. if I am described, it's in, described in terms of colonial terms. Mm. I'm the savage. I'm the person that needs rescuing. Mm. I need your help. And this is it's weird. People think it's a, a recent thing. Yeah. But this is the foundation, the foundation of Western philosophy mm. based on Western white superiority. And more, more importantly, Northern Western Germany, Britain, France, Netherlands, mm. Italy. And this is, this is again, like, again, like, people, like key thinkers in sociology, Weber thought that there's a distinction between mm. Protestants and Catholics. Northern, Northern Europe is more superior than Southern Europe. And yeah. this, is, this, is, this is a key thing that runs through far-right doctrine at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's a hierarchy of Westernness. I think that's what yeah. I was just thinking, actually, Ali. When you were giving those examples, I was thinking about how those ideas and sort of theoretical endeavours how are reproduced within sociology and you can see them even now. <laughs> yeah. So it's con it's consistent, isn't it? <clears throat> and that's what is yeah. quite fascinating about it, but yeah. even disturbing. <laughs> why do you think sociology as a subject disassociates itself from the issues that it, it, it says it attempts to tackle? Mm. It's like what we were discussing before we started recording. It was mm. like sociology always, or sociologists portray our discipline, sociology, as being the most critical of all of the disciplines, of all of the possible yes. disciplines. It's the discipline that's founded on criticizing the status quo. And what the sociologists don't realize is that, yeah, sociologists were criticizing one form of the status quo, but they were reproducing another status, status quo, the colonial difference. So if you think about Marx, it's like one of the best examples. He's obviously criticizing the status quo, right? He's bringing a, a criticism to Western capitalism, capitalism in, in the UK in particular, right? If you think about like his writings about India, where he says colonialism is actually quite good because it helps him catch up with the UK. It helps him catch up with Europe. Colonization <clears throat> has some kind of good sides. Then it's quite difficult to see how that's kind of standing against any status quo, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When he talks about the fact that the Asiatic mode of production is going to stop the development of countries mm -hmm. like China and India. That's not criticizing a status quo. That's directly actually endorsing. making it. Yeah, yeah, yeah endorsing, endorsing it. it. Yeah. yeah, but it's like it's like thinkers like Mill. They still mm. have that notion of there's a hierarchy. Like these, there's there's like China had civilization, but they stagnated. Yeah, they stagnate, and this is a, a this is the key thinking of that time. Mm. And I suppose as time moves on, we've kind of rarefied these thinkers and removed them from the context of their time. Yeah, but the the context of time it leaks through into their work. I suppose when you're in, in when you're at university, no one looks at the kind of the kind of adjacent texts mm. really, because when you do, you start seeing this. Mm. You start seeing like when you read stuff on race, and you're thinking that's horrendous. Like, I, what I find even more funny than that is because you have the you have the obvious racists. You yeah. have the Kant. You know, mm. you have Hume, and you have all of these yeah. people, and then you have people who are radically I'm against imperialism. And then you look at what they're writing and it's like, are you really against imperialism? Mm -hmm. So once again, Giddings in the States, mm -hmm. um, who's a sociologist who said, you know, challenging rule over alien people is the, the pressing issue of sociology. 
he then was writing his own introduction to sociology, and one of the comments he made was that kind of like, he was talking about this kind of convergence between biology and sociology, because at the beginning of the 20th century and at the end of the 19th century, they're kind of almost one and the same. Mm -hmm. So even in the UK, like Richard Spencer is simultaneously a biologist who's committed to you know, eugenics, eugenics, yeah, yeah. eugenics, whilst also being a sociologist. Mm -hmm. So Giddings kind of makes this point that living creatures do not commonly mate with individuals of other than their own species. <laughs> and the example he uses for that is actually not from like b typical biology, it's not to do with animals. The, the example he uses is white men do not usually marry black women. So can you see how he says he's anti-imperialist mm -hmm. and yet he's saying white men and black women are different species, mm -hmm. let alone it's, different people, different species. It is but, like, blows your mind. See, when you're saying that and you interrogate, mm. I, when you start interrogating, it seems almost obvious. Yeah. And, but that's the scary thing, but it's not, it's, not, it's not that way, it's not presented that way. You just assume that these guys yeah. are doing what they say. Yeah, not, precisely. Not holding up, not reinforcing the status quo. Yeah. And what's kind of scary, well, not kind of scary, what is scary is that these are people who we are basing our knowledge on. Who are, precisely, yeah. Who are custodians of knowledge and, or who are producers of knowledge also. Yeah, and it's almost like not only are we, we're we kind of seeing them, we kind of see ourselves as being indebted to them. Because mm -hmm. These yes. people paved the way open for us to study society. Uh, so we kind of feel like we're, we're forced to feel like we owe these this mm. intellectual trajectory something, whereas in reality it hasn't offered us maybe what we what we want from our criticisms mm -hmm. of society, right? So in the UK context, another example of this is uh, Patrick Geddes, mm -hmm. who's seen as one of the pioneers of British sociology. He was, once again, anti-imperialist, mm -hmm. and yet heavily involved in colonial town planning in India and mm -hmm. in Palestine. And Branford, who was kind of one of Geddes' partners in, in kind of creating British sociology, had investments in colonial Paraguay mm -hmm. with the, with building <laughs> trains. That's not benign, right? That's got to be something evil but is going on there, right? Sometimes there's a mm -hmm. separation of our disciplines too much. So history is an important component to sociology, mm -hmm. but sometimes we don't look at that. Without understanding history, you wouldn't have, there's no context to what mm -hmm. they're doing. So it allows sociology to function in this, in this bubble where it almost seems like it is doing what it's doing. It's value-free, but it has a context to it. And, his, and history is the context. These people are part of the empire. Mm. I feel like... I feel like you can just put it even in more basic terms that sociology is embedded, whether it's through how it was developed, through mm. what we do now, in white supremacy. Yeah. Mm. Like, I do think that it's... Obviously, there's people... There's, there's so many of us that are doing work, anti-racist work against that to critique that, but how it has been sustained over time, like the examples that you've just given, mm -hmm. like, it's... They feel... That they that there's a that they're more superior, so they can do this work. Mm. For me, it's a problem in that not even just not just sociology, social sciences. Yeah, it goes to the claim that it feels that it's objective, like the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. But the key word is the word social. Mm. Like you're involved, you're you're mm. drawing from sight. So the biases I bring from from my life, my life experience, I bring it to this mm. in what I produce. Those things that you're talking about, white supremacy, patriarchy. They're all going to be injected into that work. But the point is, I guess mm. my point is that mm. we think that it isn't. Yeah, exactly. That's we say. think that it yeah, isn't. Yeah. We think we continuously say, you say it's like value free. Oh, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's value free. It doesn't have any of these things in like, mm. like you say. We feel like that's such a good point, Ali, that you made. Um, we feel like we're indebted to mm. these people, and that's what I just can never get my head around. It's like, oh, you're using this person again mm. and again and again, and it's like, when is the time that we actually say, do you know what, like? I, I don't think you, this is the, it's like it's like this statue argument when you see these statues of mm. these great white men but they've done some <laughs> fucked up things right yeah but people once you start doing it and you develop a myth a myth becomes reality it's hard to separate the only people said to me Churchill was great and I'm like was he and they're like what do you mean I'm like well if he was that great why didn't he get re-elected after the war finished because he was that great yeah. Like, like mm. that's the, it's the most simple thing. He didn't get re-elected. Even though he led you through the, the darkest hour. And he committed genocide. Yeah, but I said, yeah. like, <laughs> these myths are so powerful <laughs> that people don't, they're not really interested in going further. Yeah. And that's what I find the kind of difficulty, mm. especially in, ch in challenging someone who's like an academic. Yeah, I think it speaks to sort of kind of decolonial theorists would kind of refer to this as the coloniality of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so kind of like coloniality 
is kind of this concept that came out of Keanu and some other you know scholars of this trajectory, and it's kind of referring to how colonialism didn't finish with colonial administrations, mm-hmm. and it was a system of power that kind of carries on to the present day, right? Mm-hmm. So Du Bois has a really nice way of, because Du Bois kind of talked about it but didn't coin the term, mm-hmm. but he has a really nice comment that kind of the move from colonialism to post-colonialism is a matter of degree rather than a matter of essence. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same thing is happening, it's just dressed up in a slightly different way. Can you break that down just a little bit more, what you what he meant by that, or what you, yeah, what yeah, you interpret him meaning by that? Yeah. Precisely. So, I mean, Du Bois's own examples are, is that kind of like all of these nations suddenly gain supposed independence. Um, so they kind of become no longer colonised, right? Mm-hmm. And he points out that, yeah, they're no longer officially colonised. There's no longer a colonial administration set up in these countries. And yet, if you look at the situation of the people, and if you look at the situation of the country in terms of how it relates in wealth to other countries and so on, where it's exporting to and where it's importing to and the tariffs that are imposed on the exports and imports, that follows a pretty clear pattern of colonization. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like colonization by another means. So to use Du Bois's own words, he kind of says, the US has complete control over the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and Dominican R. New York dictates the price of Cuban sugar, heat and coffee, and Dominican products, while tin from Bolivia, coffee from Brazil, gold from South Africa, copper from Rhodesia, and uranium from Congo, are all under foreign control and the native populations have their income and way of life dictated by powers outside their political control. We thus enter a new phase of colonial imperialism that has the same intentions as the old one, control over Asian and African labour to the benefit of a Western European elite. 100%. Bang on. Yeah. Still the same. Like, uh, I think I'm said, like, France's relationship 14 ex-colonies in Africa. Mm. So they still have to give 85% of their bank reserves yeah. to France. To, that goes under the name of the Bank of France, which is gambled on the stock market in the front in France's name. Yeah. Then these colonies are allowed their money back, but only up to twenty percent, but at commercial rates. This has been doing. This has been going on since nineteen fifty-eight. It still goes on now. Yeah. That that's actually insane. Yeah, and the kind of coloniality kind of um, critique is then that this whole system of domination isn't just about economics, mm-hmm. and it's not just about power. It's also about, as we were discussing earlier, epistemology. So the way that we think and the way that we produce knowledge and what kinds of knowledge we see as valuable and which kinds we see as being more like superstition or mm-hmm. more like beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, for example, indigenous people across the world, right? Their kind of systems of knowledge are like, their superstitions, their beliefs. So like the Hawaii notion of aloha, like we share, we share a breath, right? Mm-hmm. And it's to do with this whole concept of agency. So like my individual agency is lived and created through being a member of a group. So you kind of agency in a sense is lived through the other or kind of comes from another. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all superstition. Agency is really to do with this kind of intentionality. It's kind of to do with this Western bourgeois notion of individualism that we see in Bourdieu, that we see in Giddens, that we see in this whole trajectory of sociological thought, right? Mm-hmm. That's real knowledge. That's mm-hmm. sociological knowledge. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is... Yeah, almost like mystical. Magic. It's mystical. It's almost like magic. Yeah, and that's what I say. It's about it's about belief and like we do real stuff. We what we do is like akin to a science. Yeah. So it's it, you should listen to what we say, and I, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's almost like how the West has studied other people mm. and to know to say to someone, I actually know more about yourself than you do. Yeah, precisely. And so I'm going to tell you about your history. I'm going to tell you about what your theories are. Yeah. And explain it to you because you don't understand. And this is, I suppose, I suppose it's like Edward Said and Orientalism, mm-hmm. like, like the study of Egypt. Yeah. I'm going to tell the Egyptians all about your antiquity because you don't really know. Like you lost it all. And it's, it's scary because growing up, yeah. going to museums, that's what you imbibe. That's what I knew. And I would, I would quote people, these thinkers, and you, I quote it uncritically because it's seen as the truth. Yeah. And I suppose that's what's problematic, mm. that we repeat and keep repeating these, so I suppose the myths and, mm. and and kind of, um, I don't know what other word, but yeah, these myths that we keep repeating them. Yeah. And it's, we, and, when, and when someone who, if you, you go into a classroom mm-hmm. and this teacher is, I see, regarding him as an authority, if he's saying it, it must be true. Yeah. And this comes back to, you know, once again, this kind of decolonial School, so mm-hmm. Grossfugel has this notion of an ego politics of knowledge. The West has this ego politics of knowledge because they see themselves as possessing the ability to create knowledge. And that applies for sociology as well, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. So back at the beginning of the 20th century, W.I. Thomas is saying, savage tribes 
aren't capable of sociological reflection, right? Mm. And then when you're talking about we, i.e. the West, mm. goes to study you, we can think about, once again, Patrick Geddes, who, you know, he goes to India and he's the first professor of sociology in Bombay. Or, like, Elias, who becomes the sociology of professor in, in Ghana as well, right? So we kind of, like, created all of these educational institutions in this new phase of colonialism where it was, like, post-World War II and we kind of move away from the idea of race while kind of well, well, still keeping <laughs> it. But officially, we've moved away from the idea of race. And we say colonialism is now going to be about economics and we'll let you keep your indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. And we're going to give you some nice infrastructure. We're going to give you some educational institutions. We're going to build universities for you. But then they instilled Western academies there, right? So you only learn Western knowledge about yourself mm -hmm. if you are indigenous and going there, which isn't that likely anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so once again, you kind of... And then even after these countries gained independence, like 10, 20 years later, the teaching staff is still the same. Yeah. So it's kind of like, once again, we've imposed this idea of what the academy should look like and what sociology should look like onto the entire world. And now people are speaking back to it. Well, they have been speaking back for a while, but I think that now this conversation is really I think, bubbling up in the UK. I think right now, mm. but I think at this current moment, it is an issue, but what I'm scared of or my theory, sorry, it, it is that it will be turned into something else. Yeah. And it, and then it's to maintain the status quo, because like I said, like they cannot, they cannot say to me like maybe these maybe maybe Marx is not that great. <laughs> like for people to say that that's like, I have I've had lectures they speak on such like Adam Smith. Yeah. They love Adam Smith. They do. They love Adam they Smith. Do. And it's to say that to Adam Smith is problematic would cause. Mm people to like to doubt the epistemology of the West. Yeah. And that can't be questioned because it's a canon that has been, it's like the Bible. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something set in stone. Mm -hmm. You can't mess with this. Even though we know it's been added to and changed over time. Yeah. It's something that you can't touch. Well, not me and you. Yeah. I mean, something I've seen play out, I don't know what you all think. Mm. Something I've seen play out in these decolonization debates. I don't know why I keep doing it. Yeah, Alex at various points has done, yeah, yeah. air quotes. quotes. <laughs> Every time I say the West, it's, yeah. it's an air quotes. Okay. Um, what I've seen play out is that most universities are doing decolonization, as you were saying, Chantel, mm. as a marketing scheme. And one of the ways they do that in sociology is by having Marx Weber Durkheim and then adding the boys. <laughs> and I think that decolonization is this process of maintaining the center as it is, as it is yeah. and including bits and bobs from the periphery. Yeah. And Du Bois is such an interesting example to use because he's a radical Marxist, right? Yeah. Mm. And yet he's not taught as a Marxist, he's taught as someone who talks about double consciousness. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when you see this decolonization in sociology now, it's not like, you know, Khaldun, who was talking about sociology centuries before Marx. Mm. It's about bringing in a Marxist and then teaching him as an identity theorist. Yeah. And often lumping him with other black people, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, look at this tradition. Mm. And it's not incorporated into the, you know, the way that sociology actually played out. Mm. So kind of you don't learn about Du Bois setting up the first empirical school of sociology in the US. Yeah. In the Atlanta school. You don't learn about his arguments in Black Reconstruction, where he kind of criticizes Marx for his, what people call a bifurcation. So kind of one of the criticisms of Marx that Du Bois makes lots of people make now is that he analyzes the development of western capitalism without including analysis of how all of that capital was coming from exploitation and expropriation overseas right yeah. and this is kind of like really characteristic of once again what i was referring to as the imperial episteme this idea that we can study particular nations and then build universal theories from it so if you think about michael mann he sets out in sources of social power to study development of power over humankind and he analyzes, I think, US, France, Germany, UK. And it's like, is that all of humankind? And he doesn't do it in a way that makes references to their colonies. Yeah. It's Little England. It's yeah. like kind of Little England. Mm -hmm. but, it's, it's, but again, this, this notion is, yeah. is peppered out of Western exceptionalism. Mm. It's, it's constant. And it's a constant yeah. theme. And, but it's, and not until you're aware of it, that you just think it's normal, especially if you live here, it's mm. normal. Mm. So you, even when you start saying, when in people's like day-to-day -day chat, they compare themselves, compare everywhere to We weren't like that, were we? Mm. They, oh, they, like, when they're talking about um, some of the uh, uh, Islamic countries, they still cut people's heads off. We were never yeah. like that. I'm like, what? Like, it's like Boris Johnson, right? What did he say? Like, Islam set... set oh, I don't know. I read his article... Like centuries or something? Yeah, yeah. Centuries? I read his article in 2006, and he said like something like Constantinople... 
like when 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 um, the Ottomans con- con- conquered mm-hmm. uh, Constantinople in 1453, the light of Roman, the Roman world was shut out, and like that's historically inaccurate. Yeah, <laughs> like that's actually that's actually wrong. Like it's like it's the Fourth Crusade. You want to go back to the Fourth Crusade? That's when it all went wrong. And uh, it's that idea that the West can do no wrong, and if they do do wrong, it's kind of glossed over. Yeah. And it's glossed over in terms of theoretical terms, so we don't question these thinkers. Mm. Or it's glossed over his, 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 historically by presenting the story in, from a particular point of view. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Islam thing as well is just, it, it's so interesting because of that history of Orientalism that you were talking yeah. about with Said. Mm. Um, and also then, if you want to think about the 21st century and all of the intervention in the so-called Middle East or, you know, that's driven by a logic of of um, Orientalism as well, right? It's like the rest of the world is secular, but these Muslims they're still really clinging to kind of this really outdated religion. Monarchy, Do yeah, yeah. Monarchy, are you insane? Um, and it's super interesting as well because I came across this guy Ali Shariati, who's this kind of like Iranian sociologist, and he has this argument that in actual fact, Islam isn't counter to the logic of modernity. It's not going to be tradition against modernity. Islam is necessarily kind of a revolutionary religion. Mm-hmm. And he kind of says that if we kind of divested from these Marxist conceptions of religion as an opium of the people, we can see that in various social movements outside of the West, religion is actually the driving force in the fight against the bourgeoisie. Oh, oh 100%. 100%. Like, listen, 100%. Yeah. Like, the Iranian Revolution, perfect then. example. Well, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. He, perfect he example. Yeah. Yeah, like, he was a big intellectual inspiring yeah. that movement. So, so I, <laughs> that's what happens when we kind of move away from the center and start considering voices from the periphery, as we see that. Actually, a heck of a lot's being missed out if we only stick to these really narrow themes. I, I know, but I think, like I said, it, yeah. Once you start crossing the edifice of Western civilization, it's problematic. Already, the fear that this is crumbling has called them to say Western civilization is dying, and when they fear stuff, bad things happen. Mm. And this is this is where we're at at the moment. They fear that this Western civilization is somehow declining. No, mm. I'm just actually just saying, maybe you're wrong. Mm. What I would say as well is that fear that you're talking about, that fragility that we talk about quite a lot on the podcast, sociology is not exempt from those things playing out. But Mm. people, individuals, collectives, institutions think they are. Um, And I feel like that's what we have to get better at in terms of looking at ourselves and how we perpetuate. But I, I also think as academics, if we don't do that, you're especially if you're brought up in the Western tradition, you're not doing what that tradition is meant to do. Question yeah. everything. But this is a mm. but tea, but tea. Like taking it just down even to your experience in mm. getting the PhD funding. Mm. One of the reasons, and me not getting PhD funding, I know mm. I'm taking it all the way down to like the individual here, but it's because our experiences and our, our inability to get what they see as academic excellence mm. is not seen as the right thing. Yeah. And other point is, as sociologists, social scientists, we're all, we always say that we should question rules, we should question everything. everything. But it, on the most basic <laughs> thing as but, about how you enter but, the academy, but, like this, we don't do, even do that. This is what upsets me. So it's this, like, this is, and this is the common trend. Like people that should know better, people that are brought up in this that read these books, like I, I quoted someone like Kanye West, like, like to dare to know that like, what is enlightenment. You have to know, like to question everything. That's what you've been brought up to. It's the whole schooling system is based on critiquing and analysing and using your reason. Mm. But yet, these people who are brought up in that tradition abandon that. And when it comes to these certain thinkers, this is it's it's, it's not even. I think you'd probably even lose marks if you start critiquing <laughs> an essay. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and. I guess, like, in terms of what you were talking about, Ali, in terms of looking at the periphery and, like, particularly looking at sociology and the wider academy and the university, we were talking before um, the episode started, I was saying that I was looking at some of the um, Russell Group Sociology University reading lists, and I won't say which one in particular, but one of them, one of the supposedly the best places in the UK to study sociology, I looked at their core reading list, and it was 90% white men. Mm -hmm. Like... I was astounded, and this is a, this is an institution which is marketing itself on a decolonizing mm. movement. So it's like I agree with you. There is a conversation happening, but as Tiso says, I'm worried about what is or is not going to come out of that. Is it going to be yeah. another missed opportunity? Can people actually look at themselves in the way that we need them to, like on a day to day basis? Like, how is what I'm doing? perpetuating inequalities and myths about society mm. like yeah precisely i think that it kind of speaks to loads of 
problems. One of them is to do just with like who is teaching social theory. Yes. And I think that once again, it's not like an individual person's fault, but it no. refers to a trajectory. So if certain people were schooled in a certain version of theory and they only read certain books, certain journals, and can only speak certain languages, which I think is a really UK specific problem as well, mm -hmm. um, they're going to go on to teach that, right? Because they don't want to put in the extra work to mm -hmm. read stuff that they're not familiar with because there's no pressure on them to do so, really. No one's telling them that they have to do so. Um, so one of the issues is the teaching like that. And the other issue is kind of like what you're both saying about what happens once we do start questioning the canon. Um, and yeah, well, there's, there's that fragility. So when, when Connell wrote uh, Southern Theory, one of the responses was by Randall. No, when she wrote Why is Classical Theory Classical? Um, Randall Collins kind of replied to it saying it's a sociological guilt trip. Right, he's, she's trying to make oh us feel God. guilty. Oh my God, you're literally using that. Like, they're yeah, literally using yeah. sociology, the term, to yeah. say that, yeah, um, God, there's so much, yeah, so much wrong with that. So there's that fragility. And I think the other issue is then if we start questioning the canon, we have to start situating it within that notion of the belly of the imperial episteme. And we have to realise that our discipline has this really dark history that is not history. That is something that yes, has continued point. to shape the way our discipline works still today, um, which is the reason why, for example, you'll have a post-colonial reading group, you'll have a sociology of race reading group, but you know, if you go to a political economy or a sociology of class reading group, those perspectives won't be included, even though they're absolutely 100% relevant. Um, so once we start questioning the canon, we have to start situating you know, Marx's Orientalism, Weber's Orientalism, Durkheim's really close relationship <laughs> with the French colonial administration, <laughs> The U.S. Uh, relationship with sociology's relationship with imperialism, Britain's relationship with overseas colonialism, right? So but I don't think this is the issue. All those countries you met, that you mentioned, yeah, haven't come to terms with that past. Precisely, yeah. And if they haven't come to terms with the past, they can't. They they can't deal with that. So even when I speak on, what well, even you speak to people on the most basic notion, they don't understand that part of their history because it's not taught, mm. and so engaging with it and coming to terms and accepting it it's i suppose the only thing in the western tradition i suppose that kind of kind of kind of comes close to it is denazification mm. they actually had to face up to what they did and and yeah. well kind of but it, it helps things move on yeah but, i mean that's that's so interesting as well because you know that Césaire's critique of of nazism right mm. and he's like the reason why it kind of shook Europe so much was because it was happening on their turf. Mm -hmm. This stuff was reserved for overseas. Mm -hmm. So okay, kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so like with the French, like two years after their uh, emancipation from Nazism, they were doing exactly the same thing in Algeria mm -hmm. with public shootings. Mm -hmm. And it was like... But like I said, it's different. But, <laughs> but like I said, and, it, and this is why that big European project to kind of think yeah. like, we can't have it here anymore. Like mm. war is something that happens elsewhere. Yeah. Poverty happens elsewhere, but here we are civilized. We have we have the knowledge. We are the custodians. We tell people. Yeah. And it's that boomerang effect again that Cesare talks about because you say that you're civilized. You come to our countries and do all of this to us. You instill that logic of war, like what you were saying. So Maldonado Torres talks about colonialism as naturalization of the non ethics of war because you start doing all of these things that historically people did in war, mm. but now you're just doing it every day. Mm. Um, you come here and do that. And then in doing that, you say we're not human. And then because you're doing all these acts to us, you're the one that's actually becoming barbaric. Mm -hmm. You're the actual, you know, barbaric person. You're the savage person here. So there's this boomerang effect of colonialism as well. But which it's, once again is completely but ignored. It's, it's, but it's shocking, but when you, yeah. use, you use their own knowledge to demonstrate an example of what they're doing but then it, it's kind of dismissed mm. so uh, i was speaking to some of my friends again yesterday and about this notion of absorbing knowledge mm. knowledge that you know to be by your lived experience you know to be kind of racial and a bit a bit messed up but they they repeat it to me parrot fashion without even thinking and, and it's mm. scary like this has been passed down from academia they've gone to school and learned this about themselves mm. yeah mm. I mean, as a as a kind of response to what um, we're talking about here, if you see in, um, I haven't actually finished it yet, but reading some of it and seeing them present on it, Danny Dorlin and Sally Tompkinson's Royal Britannia book, they put it all down to the syllabus, or not all of it, but a, a huge contributing factor of why we can't look at ourselves and our role in the world is the private school syllabus mm. that the British elite are 
told how they're continuously told they're amazing and we don't at all at any point um tell them to look at themselves and it's quite like like they give examples of like what the, some of the books that are it within the british um elite private schools and it's like it's pretty yeah. scary like it, the, they have to reinforce like, that narrative like, yeah yeah they but, have to but and that's why and that's one of the reasons why because they, these people are groomed to be at the top that they will yeah, but it's like um they will continue they will never ever look at themselves look at themselves critically because they're not told they're to totally ever do that but i was we I, are exceptional i was reading about um I was thinking about there's that fear of liberalism, like when going out and sending like basically little Germans and sending them elsewhere mm. and then spreading the, spreading that kind of like German knowledge elsewhere and starting a new empire. And I was thinking we have the same thing now, but we don't export them to countries under colonial thing. Yeah. You're going to work for Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong. Mm. Oh my god, definitely. You're going to go yeah. here, and so these people we at the top. That. And so my mate, he's gone to Hong Kong. And he's got a decent job, got a decent place. Yeah. He's away from all the locals, man. His place is really nice, mm-hmm. man. But he's just part of that system. He hasn't gone there. Instead of going there under all spaces of government, he's gone there under all spaces, which, is, like which is worse, under corporation, which is a private company doing things for money. Mm-hmm. So they don't really care about people. It's about money. It's about the bottom line. Micro-colonialism Yeah, but it's, it's colonialism, but, but by another way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So big companies, like he's with, uh, I think he's Goldman Sachs and... These people go out there and they work for companies and they ca- they take this knowledge of Western economics, mm. Western policies, Western theories. This is how you get things done. This is how you yeah. get money. Uh, again, it's that it's that idea of the imperial academy, right? So another, mm. it, it can also work in an opposite way, where we have this kind of these neoliberal academies and these rankings of different universities, and we're like, all of these universities in the global south are shit. You've got to come and study here. You've got to come and study in the Ivy Leagues or Oxbridge or LSE or so as. And if you don't study in these places, you're not going to get a very good job when you go back home. So you go to these places, you get an imperialist uh, reading of your home country, and then you're expected to go back and contribute towards its development. Oh, oh I did the yeah. I did the quotes again. Yeah, I, and this is and, and like I, I, don't, I sometimes don't think about it like that mm. in terms of yeah. But this is and this what? is scary thing. The leaders yeah. of these, especially like the post uh, independence leaders of, of most of the Africans, they're all educated over here. Yeah. Gandhi, all of these people are educated in Britain. Yeah, and once again, that's something that Shariati was talking about. Mm. He was like, Iran is not going to get anywhere if we keep sending all of our intellectuals to learn about Iran in the US. Because mm-hmm. if you're learning about Iran in Harvard, you're going to be given a very different version of what's actually happening in mm-hmm. Iranian society as if you were engage- compared to if you were engaging with radical Islamic thought. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with all of these post-colonies. Post colonial places, but this is this is the thing. So yeah, the West, like I said, but it's that it's that kind of the idea that we hold knowledge, mm. and we, we we like I said, we have to we hold it, and we don't. So everyone has to come to us. Like this is the place to learn. This is the center of learning. The center yeah. of excellence. So people, you need to come to my country to learn about yourself. Yeah, which is insane. It's, it, it's it, yeah. When you when you lay, when you lay it out, you think that actually sounds a bit mad, like. It's this other task of decolonial theory is to kind of indigenize European thought, to provincialize European thought, mm. and to show how, because it seems like we're all in sociology, right? So we take it as a given that knowledge is socially situated. Mm. And that's actually one of the core tenets of European sociology and, and or Western, I did it again. Yeah. Western, Everyone does air quotes, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, of Western sociology. And yet when it comes to then us saying, hey, if you're saying that sociology comes from a standpoint how come Western's social science isn't itself coming from a standpoint? How come it presents yeah. itself? Why is it universal? But it's like a central tenet of the Enlightenment. Yeah, if yeah. it's universal, universal laws, universal norms that you're trying to establish. Yeah. But even though we know it's not true, mm. but that's, that's what you're always doing. And I think it comes down then to, once again, it's Enlightenment. Because in the Enlightenment, the mm-hmm. conception of who was human was unbelievably racialized, right? Mm-hmm. So white Europeans uh, are, are human and everyone else is varying degrees of animalism down to black, right? Down to black. Yeah. At the bottom. At the bottom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, D'Souza Santos then speaks about abyssal thinking and this abyssal line. And what we do is we kind of draw this line in the West and we think when we're talking about people in our theories, we're talking about very specific types of people. But because we've drawn this epistemic, this kind of like abyssal line of this frame of reference, we don't really have to think about people on the other side of the line 
when we're constructing our theories. And that plays out not only in sociology, but in politics more broadly. Right? <laughs> so the US has no problem saying that they're practicing democracy whilst they're torturing people in Afghanistan, right? <laughs> Same with the UK. The UK has no problem saying it's a democracy. Mm-hmm. And then they go overseas and do terrible things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or do terrible things to people at home mm-hmm. who aren't part of this side of the yeah. line, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that one of the reasons why Western sociology or social science presents itself as universal is because even though it took so much data from the South, so, you know, with Durkheim, he had this group called the Lanais Sociologique, and I think that only 20% of their papers that they published in this 10-year period were focused on Europe and the US. The rest were actually coming from French colonies or overseas territories. Um, so even though Western sociology has taken so much data from the South, it still kind of presents itself as only really speaking about this side of the line. <clears throat> I, I think because it's part of the imperial project still, yeah. the imperial project, has, it relies on a dichotomy of there has to be uh, an inferior person to say that I'm superior. Mm. And without that kind of dichotomy, it, it doesn't work. So if I don't have... So if but you, how do we know it doesn't work? Because, no, for, for the worst, I mean, so it, this current system yeah. of expectation, you need to justify... But why? Why do we, like, I no. always say this to you, I'm like, but we, we've not done anything different. No, no, for, so for example, for, so when you're talking about race, right, so mm-hmm. slavery's always existed, right? But to justify the, my expectation of black people exclusively, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to come up with theories, ideas of notions of superiority to justify my expectation of these people specifically. Mm-hmm. So Western civilization built up on, the, on this notion and widely of the South as being my inferior. Mm. And once you take that away, what is the West? You realise that we're, we're, we're pretty much the same. Yeah. And that people, like, it's provincialised, so you can situate knowledge in a specific place like we do everywhere else. So these yeah. universal laws that you kind of, they don't work. Yeah, but I guess that the the added problem to that is then that even though there's this necessary relationship, mm-hmm. the West doesn't see it in that way, right? No. So it's kind of like, you know, Fanon says that the West is literally the creation of the colonized mm-hmm. because their existence depends upon the people who yeah. yeah. project themselves as superior to. But these relations never get teased out. So another way to think about that is, you know, you know, Marx does this really weird thing where he talks about modes of production and he's like, first of all, like, you have like a slave-based society, then a feudal society, and Self, then capitalist yeah. society, yeah. And it's like, first of all, you know, enslavement was absolutely essential to the capitalist society. Mm. But why not also analyze differences, or sorry, connections between different modes of production? So how come one country might be of a capitalist mode of production, say the UK, whereas another might be still a feudal or a slave-based society? deliberately because the capitalist countries are trying to keep other countries down. Like yeah, why not sa- Why not make the connection yeah. between why this yeah. society is like this and it's because of yeah. the yeah, exploitation of the other one? Yeah. Yeah, like a better example maybe is Giddens because Giddens talks about tribal societies oh, God. that develop into class-based, mm. class-divided societies which develop into capitalist societies. Once again, he doesn't label colonial societies and he says these are all the different societies that there are. But as people point out, why doesn't he analyse how capitalist societies actually rely on keeping other societies as tribal societies? I suppose they would, I think they yeah. would say uh, they'll catch up in the end. That's the reason why they're like yeah. they're just at a different stage in development. They'll catch up eventually. Yeah. But obviously, it's not the case. But they're not looking at themselves. They're not thinking. Actually, no. the reason why we've got this mode of capitalism is because. And and, and there is the in, that's the problem. How can these people have normalised their behaviour? Mm. So how can you expect them? They've never engaged with themselves critically. And this is what I've this is what I've been trying to say about whiteness and all that. Like in the struggle for equal, like equality and all that, it's always been us asking them, asking them, asking mm. them. And all they've been doing is rubber stamping, saying, "All right, all right." Same mm. with women voting. It took them ages. Nineteen twenty-one, boom. All right. But it, did, did the men really engage with these women's like like I think the day before the votes in the UK, you saw MPs were saying the country's going to fall apart. Women's brains are smaller. The day before, so they just let them have yeah. that vote mm. they didn't really engage and say listen I think you should have the vote Look because yeah. yeah and this is the problem and this is why at the moment this, at this current moment this is, there's this fear in the west of they feel like, they almost feel like they're being found out no I'm just mm. saying to you like listen I'm fed up of doing the thinking for you I'm not, I don't want to have to justify my existence all the time mm. I want you to kind of think, think just, well is it okay for me to say this or why do I think that I've got one of my friends that he was saying the most nonsense things about war and Churchill. I'm like, we're not at war. <laughs> Apparently, we are at war, right? 
Well, this is what someone said to Tiso yesterday. No, he was still, he was telling me you talking about the European Union. I'm like, yeah, yeah, apparently we're at war with you. Yeah, and they were like, this is what I'm saying. He's like, I'm like, we're not, no one no, we're not. So I said, like, I'm going to send you the dictionary definition of what a war is. No, but to be fair on your mate, like, Boris is using, they're all using these, that language. The language of war. And I said exactly that. I said exactly that. I said, you're putting your nationalistic heartstrings. And I said, it's working. But I said, why don't you just read the book, man? Like I don't. Even, I said I googled. Because he cut, because I said I just, I just googled the definition of the meaning of war and sent it to you, and you're like that. Oh, okay. I was like, but to be fair, to you, like he can't because he's bombarded with but, all this but like spin, all this in- intellectualization of inferiority, like all this. But stuff this is the thing. But but when you're white, you have that luxury of not doing that. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. All of us in this room, you engage in that, and so I'm always critiquing the thing that I'm around because I know. There's systems of oppression that operate that affect me, yeah. and from a young age you're primed to do that. Yeah. So your parents are telling you that, even if it's not on an academic, it's on a day to day level. Mm. But when you're white, you don't have to do that. When you're a man, you don't have to do that because mm. it's normalised. Mm. And so you're not looking. So how am I trying to? So I'm always doing the hard work. Mm. I'm always the one explaining the rules. So if you walk into a room, Chantel, they're gonna ask you oh, questions about race, your hair, and all this. Mm. I'm like, listen, there's 50 years of research. Mm. Google it, bro. It's like, I like to think about it, those kinds of microaggressions. Yeah. I like to yeah. think about them as like what I call a creativity of racist action. Yeah. Because it's kind of like, and it comes back to before what you were discussing in terms of ignorance. So when you were talking about how racism and coloniality breeds an epistemology of ignorance, which means ignorance becomes a way for the dominant to perceive the world. It becomes a way of knowing, almost. Yeah. So we or kind of, not know, a way of not yeah, knowing, way which, of is, knowing which, which, is, not which is respected yeah. as well. You're allowed to not know. Precisely, yeah. And because of this ignorance, and I know why lots of critical race theorists are kind of hesitant to analyse ignorance is because we don't want to individualise racism. Mm. But we can think about it as something that comes from a structure, right? Your position in a structure enables you to use ignorance as a form of knowledge. So if you think, if you all think about the microaggressions that we've faced, there are so many where it's just like, where the fuck did that come from, right? Yeah. So I was at um, lunch with my colleague, Monica Marina Figueroa, who oh, is keynoting yes. at PSA next year. Yeah. Is she? she is, oh, yeah. Monica's, oh, um, amazing. So amazing. everyone should go and see that. Yes. Mm. Um, and one of the senior members of her college then came up to me and we, we were having a conversation and suddenly said, your English is really good. <gasps> right. For God's sake. And like we all know where that comes from. I mean, yeah. We all know that that's not particularly unusual. I mean, all know that compared to other ones, it's not particularly harmful. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like there was nothing in that interaction that would make her think that I wasn't from the UK, mm-hmm. apart from the color of my skin. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a creativity that, and now the white people can be quite creative with the ways that they can find these kind of controlling images or these stereotypes and apply them to situations where they're just completely not relevant. But you see that, that but, so, but, it's but, true. but that ignorance, right? I was reading, I think it's W.K. Clifford. And so he said, beliefs, you have to have an epistic responsibility for your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to say something, before you open your mouth, have responsibility for that belief. So if you're going to say something to me now, I'll call you out. I won't, I won't even explain it to you. I'll say, why did you say that to me? When I call them out on it, they cry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, why did you... Do you know what I mean? So it's just like, it's... it's, it's there is something really... I, I, that's Listen, such a good way of putting it, Ali. Like, it's, cre- it it's is cre- creative. It's, it's like, paying from a palette that they know it's like, it's like an inventory of stuff. Mm. That yeah. they're putting stuff. But it's a belief that you're carrying inside you. I know you carry that belief. I could I could say that shit, but I'm always I'm always aware of my situation as a minority. So I'm thinking that I'm engaging yeah. that critically because I've been brought up to engage that way. Mm. But you haven't. Yeah. So but you have to have that epistic responsibility responsibility for your beliefs. Yeah. And what you're thinking. So what you're taught, what you're told, and now you have to think to me, who are you speaking to? Your audience mm. is a is a black man. Mm. Think about think about what you're gonna say. This is why I guess just bring it back to the sort of decolonising yeah. stuff as well. This is one of the reasons why I sometimes side eye it in terms of how it gets played out yeah. by institutions is because often when you'll go to like a decolonising event, it will be mainly um, people of colour or black people in the room. Mm which is nice because we don't get that many spaces to talk about like our experiences and how they need to be negotiated in a different way. But sometimes, yeah, so you get that. So you get yeah, who is actually in the room. Is it the people that need to be in there? Is it the white middle class, like gatekeeping academic mm. that's going to make the decisions about who's going to get funding? Quite often not. Like obviously there are those that go, but like it's often, I don't see enough engagement with, from those people. Mm. And the other thing is, it's like, 
when we try and get people to think differently about how, just in the case of the academy, how it's structured, the pushback is so like, it's so simplistic that it just makes me think, oh my God, we've got so, so we've got so far to go. Like mm. I'll see, I saw um, Gaminda speak not long ago at mm. LSE and she was just, obviously saying some incredible stuff as she always does about um, decol decolonisation mm -hmm. and um, someone in the audience a white guy said oh but can't we just try and focus on some of the good things like how important music has been but she's just given like a, a very broken down eloquently what we need to do why we're in the situation we're in and that's the response so she, is it like slavery was bad but the blues was good yeah yeah, yeah exactly that <laughs> right. exactly that and like she went in and it was really good but at the same time it's like the responses to how we frame what is happening uh -huh. it's all it is often white people but, oh my god this is exhausting it, exactly and <laughs> so this is what i'm saying this that level of engagement i'm like oh listen t do you think when you see is it willful but is it willful ignorance? Yeah. Like, yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And like I said, but now, why am I having to explain stuff to you? Like, your, your whole tradition is about critiquing, and it? It's about mm. being rational. It's about in the inquiry of mind. Like, do some thinking, bruv. Mm. Because you've told me, you've always told me that I'm the stupid one. Mm. And I've had to prove myself. Mm. I've had to demonstrate my humanness by appealing to your reason. Mm. And they're what even, the and even the people that, so that, I think that was a student that said that, but even the people that are seen as more sort of higher up within the academy, for example, that push back against the sorts of conversations we're having, will call us like a mob mm. and say that we're attacking their way of thinking and saying that we use our identity and lived experience and that informs our subject subjectivities. Do you know what I mean? That gets mm. sort of pushed against us as well. I see that happen yeah. probably more than the music comment. I see... Yeah. So they, they use theory to like to, 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 to talk down but to not me. even using theory saying to us that because we're finding our... Because there's lots of different ways in which we can find our voice now... Mm -hmm that we are essentially a mob, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, And it's almost this kind of ironic thing of bringing politics into an apolitical discipline in yes. sociology. Mm -hmm. And that's when the theory comes back in because mm. it's not until very recently that they personally have seen people say that you have a way of thinking because they think that theirs is the way of thinking, mm. not a way of thinking. Yes. But it's, it's a way of thinking because it's a Eurocentric, it's a provincialized, it's an indigenous way of thinking that is incomplete. And mm -hmm. actually, often empirically false, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, and it presents itself as disembodied. It presents itself as outside of time and space. It presents itself as outside of individual projections, right? That's mm -hmm. so true. It does. The time and space thing. Yeah. Like, they're the norm. Like, mm -hmm. they're... It's normal, yeah. And this is the task that's at hand. How do, you, how do you say to people, listen, I'm going to shake your world up, right, and say to you, you're not the centre. They're like, what? Men still haven't accepted that. If you say to any of my mates, listen, do you know you're as a man, you've got a privilege? What? Mm. Really? No, you actually mm. do. But that, to them, to most people, that's core shaking. Mm. It is. I, I was actually I was talking to my partner about it last night and he's a white man. And he was like, Chantel, when you first started calling me a white man, I used to be like, why is she calling me a white man? Like, do you know what I, do you know what I mean? It's, it's like even like going down no, to things see, like that. It's see, like, when they I read, find it so... But they don't see themselves as a race. They individualise themselves. Yeah. And I was reading um, White Fragility. She was saying that like, they don't, see Angela, yeah, yeah. they don't see themselves as a collective, whereas everyone else is a collective. If I do something, it echoes around the whole group. Yeah. A white radical killed loads of people. It's him. Mental health. Mm -hmm. But no, it's a way of saying that's a morally bad person. Racism is that thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas this thing here, it's, it's, not, it's not. I'm not a racist. It's like a, um, Bonnie and Silva calls it a racial grammar. <laughs> so it's kind of like racism affects, once again, our epistemology, the way that we, the way that we perceive the world. Mm -hmm. and we have a white racial grammar because white people are, th are the dominant racial group globally mm -hmm. and, and also within the UK. Mm -hmm. So kind of like, isn't it interesting that in the US you might talk about historically black colleges and universities, but the reason why there were HBCUs were because there were HWCUs, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't allowed so, to go to yeah. Yeah, historically white colleges mm -hmm. and universities. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't get talk about that, right? They're just mm -hmm. universities. Mm -hmm. So in the UK we might have discourses around black music and how it's contributing towards knife crime. Mm -hmm. But you don't have any concept whatsoever of what white music is, right? It's just music. Yeah. And, and this is this is the same argument I said, like the same, the same kind of uh, examples. I said like, you, you keep devi uh, deviating my behavior. So crime, black and black crime, like it's 
but what about when you commit crime? It's just crime. Yeah. So I said, if you go to Africa, what's crime in Africa? Black and black <laughs> crime? That's so dumb. Mm. Like, yeah. it's, it's so obvious, but when you start, when you start breaking down theoretically people yeah. and saying like, this is, it's fundamental how you construe knowledge, how your epistemology is fundamentally guaranteeing a system and this system affects me in adverse ways mm-hmm. and it privileges you. This is, this is when people get, they get their backs up because I'm saying this is the reality. But yeah. you refuse to acknowledge the reality. So your, your ontology, your epistemology is all geared for the preservation and support of your structure. Yeah, which is why simply just saying Western sociology, white sociology, like uh, Chet and Butt, or, you know, Gaminda mm. Barma talks about uh, methodological whiteness, or, you know, um, Sue Barry and Bonnie and Silver talk about white logic, white methods. These seem like kind of small things, but are actually really radical because they're saying that all of this knowledge that we've accepted as given and the knowledge that we're almost spoon-fed from day one in sociology is unbelievably racialized and unbelievably yes. kind of connected to this coloniality that we were talking about earlier. A hundred percent. That's quite a good thing to sort of say in terms of positive things that happen in. Like we are yeah. being able to have spaces or little pockets of being able to critique what is happening even in sociology, which is mm. good. And I, like I said, I think that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think right now, especially with the kind of the internet where you have a plurality of voices that can challenge these things, can push back and people are listening. Mm. And that is a positive thing because that's how we produce knowledge. And again, to quote themselves, back to themselves, Mill talks about this. You can't have accept an established dogma because it could be a dead dogma. So you need to keep challenging these things Mm -hmm. always to bring out the truth. And I think sometimes they've forgotten that. That speaks particularly to the decolonial school again, right? Because it's the very idea that the sociology we're doing is always in the world. And I'm just thinking about, you know, you're saying it's getting positive. I completely agree. And I think that whilst things are kind of getting better for us, we're building these communities. So like with podcasts like this, Mm -hmm. with groups at the BSA and with various mailing lists and so on, and the ability to communicate with scholars from all over the world via email Mm -hmm. and Skype or whatever. Um, Whilst all of that's really good at the same time, we kind of have to remember that we're doing decolonial work in a, in a world that's still run by the logic of coloniality, right? Yes, exactly. But, so that means that if we think about kind of like depressing issues of our time, you have to incorporate decolonial thinking into what you're doing in social movements and stuff, right? With the Extinction Rebellion kind of ignoring issues around indigenous and kind of climate refugees in, in their manifesto, that kind of signifies, once again, this abyssal line that we yes. consistently draw in the West, but we just don't think about other people. We think about, for example, a climate crisis as something that's coming. It's like, we got how, however many years to save the world, and it's like... It's been parts, coming for a long time. Yeah, in and, this, and some parts of the world are already in yeah, the crisis, right? It's yeah. um, so I agree, like, it's definitely, like, the West, like, they yeah, yeah. Always, they're always drawing a line. And like I said, I'm part of the West, so I'm guilty. I've done that those times myself. Precisely, yeah. So I've I've been guilty of like looking at people and even going holiday sometimes and as a well no not so much now but when I was younger you just you just think certain things yeah and it's only as I've got older and I'm thinking well why did I think that because that's just mm. weird what I've just thought and it doesn't from what I know it's not to be true yeah yeah and I think that we need to then build these kind of like global forms of solidarity that at the moment we're not doing in our responses to issues such as you know the climate crisis so if you think about quinoa right and how like or just like veganism as like one of the options to battle the climate crisis and obviously that is a good way to start it's not going to it's not going to be the best it's not going to be the one answer it's one of one thing that we have to do at an individual level but if you look at the consumption practices then what you have is loads of people in the west starting to eat things like quinoa mm. and then people in like bolivia can't afford to eat it anymore mm. right because it mm. becomes more expensive. expensive they want to have organic cashew milk and then that's being picked by indian women um, for no money, you know, mm. working almost 24 hours a day. Mm. So it's kind of like we have to form these global forms of solidarity where we can understand that what we're doing in the belly of empire, because we're in Britain, right? Mm. What we're doing in the belly of this imperialism, this neo-imperial world, has effects far, far, far away from where we are, which was kind of the tenet of globalization, but they ne- didn't really say it in a yeah, decolonial way, right? But you can, you can even, like, those are really important points, Ali, but you can even bring it to looking at the class makeup even in the yeah. UK like I saw Plantain the other day Plantain is no longer like yeah, 
it's expensive it's, now. It's expensive it? now. Like you used to be able to get like, uh, yeah, tattoo for a pound. Just because the white people because finally white found, people out found out that they're not out bananas. But you know, they thought that they were bananas. Yeah, I'm, I'm like convinced they were like rotten bananas. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of it. Reminds me of like see the example like with climate change. It reminds me of like Game of Thrones, right? Cool. All the indigenous food people are the front line. So they, they're fighting that war and we're Cersei Lannister. We're like, listen, you sort of fight it, oh, take okay. all the damage and we'll see what happens after. Or like yeah. when they send all the Dothraki. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. send all the yeah. brown people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of crack on. Do you think they knew what they were doing, the writers, in terms of... Listen, I'm, I'm telling you. Done. Listen, like, oh, like I said, we're Cersei Lannister and we're like thinking, like, we'll see how things play out. See how the savages play mm. out and do it, crack on, you sort of crack on. Oh. And if and if it happens, then, then it's our problem. Mm. And, it, 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 and again, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing, but um, yeah, it's, it's odd. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Ali. That was a really stimulating conversation. And I feel like we spoke about it in a way yeah. that's accessible as yeah. well. So do I. I think sometimes theory, I think the word theory sounds quite scary. When you say theory, mm. people think of Einstein, they're like, oh shit. Like, but no, it's, mm. it's accessible, man. It's really good, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you Thanks. for the support. If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll have another episode coming. We will see you next week. See ya.